You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26er family? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Talib Hudson. Talib serves as the Associate Director of Group Violence Intervention at National Network for Safe Communities. A native of Harlem, Talib grew up as the son of revolutionaries with aspirations of attending Howard University. But after a misplaced application left him without an acceptance or rejection from Howard, Talib decided on the George Washington University. It was there that he decided to pursue a degree in American studies and a minor in Africana studies. During our conversation, Talib not only discussed the support system he developed while attending GW, but also got candid about a clinical depression diagnosis that led him to take some time off in the final stretch of undergrad. After receiving outpatient treatment, Talib completed his requirements for graduation and went on to obtain a Master of Science in Urban Policy Analysis and Management and a Master of Philosophy in Public and Urban Policy from the New School. He's currently pursuing a PhD and continuing his work as a community-based scholar and advocate. In addition to discussing his personal and professional journey, of course, with everything going on in the world, Talib and I also shared thoughts on recent events and the long-standing impact of white supremacy on our communities as a whole. So without further ado, please enjoy. Talib, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm, I'm doing all right, doing as well as anyone could be under the current circumstances, but um, I'm feeling hopeful, feeling optimistic, you know? You know, I've been reading a lot of the news and it, you know, it's been really heavy, obviously, for all of us. And um, I was feeling and am feeling mentally and emotionally drained by a lot of things. But some of the reports that I've been seeing come out, namely like uh, abolishing qualified immunity in Colorado, has left me much more hopeful than I was uh, a couple of weeks ago in terms of like maybe a tide really is shifting here. So um, I feel you there. I feel you. And I'm, I'm very interested to hear your opinions <laughs> on a lot of things uh, yes. on in the world right now. So looking forward to this conversation. Me too. Me too. And thank you for, for having me. Thank you for the opportunity, especially uh, doing this around Juneteenth weekend. So that that's really special to me in my heart. So thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. So let's jump into it. Who is Talib Hudson? Man, listen, if I knew the answer to that question, I wouldn't be on a waiting list for a therapist right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe, maybe I still would be on a waiting list. I don't know. It seems like everyone's trying to get back into therapy with everything going on. Um, but who am I? I see myself as someone who is first and foremost a servant of God. And if I am not serving God, if I am not being uh, directed, if I am not acting in accordance um, with with spiritual guidance, uh, then 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 I'm lost. So first and foremost, uh, I see myself as someone who is a servant of God. And what that means for me also in a very practical way is that I also see myself as a servant of people, because I believe that in order to to truly serve God, that you have to to serve uh, serve uh, others as well, to serve people, and and to be a, a and to be a servant uh, to others. So to me, that that's first and foremost how I how I see myself a servant of God and, and a servant a servant of people. And then along with that, I see myself as someone who is just a learner. You know, my my name means when my parents name me. Uh, you know, Talib means 
uh, seeker. At least that's what the book said. The book of African names says seeker. In the Arabic version, Talib means student. And so, you know, that's, you know, my, you know, I don't know if it's my parents named me and I, and, and I grew into that or if my parents named me because they just knew who I was coming into the world. But that's who I am. I'm a, I'm a servant who is constantly seeking and constantly learning and trying to grow and, and do better. So a little, that. a little philosophical, but that's, that's me. Well, you know, we talk a lot about on this show of being led uh, from a place of spirit and, and not from a place of ego. It's a, a running theme here. And for many of our guests uh, and even myself as the host, that's something that we shifted into, right? So there's like sort of life before learning to be led, you know, led by spirit and move from a servant's heart. And then there's life after. Do you feel like you've had a similar uh, experience where there's a, a portion or chapters of your life um, where that wasn't necessarily the case and it is now? I think, I think that I've always been someone who, who's tried to be a servant of, of some kind even from my earliest memories. I think that's just who, who, I, who I am in, internally, intrinsically. Now, does that mean that I have all, always lived up to my own expectations and ideals? Absolutely not. No, no. Have I been, have I been led and acted on ego, pride, jealousy, envy? Of course. I mean, who hasn't, right? But mm-hmm. not to say that it's okay. But that's something that is is something that is is something I'm I'm always constantly working on and always trying to check myself on. You know, I said, you know, pride is a heck of a drug and it can lead us to do really crazy things that even we think might be in service of others, but is really in service to ourselves. So that's something that I always really try to be cognizant of, especially being someone who likes to be or tries to be in, in a social uh, service space, a, a social justice space, uh, a, an, an activism and advocacy space. There's always that question, you know, who are you, who, you know, you know, who are you serving? Are, you know, are you serving yourself? Or are you serving others? Are you serving yourself or are you serving God? So I think that that's always an ever present question that that never goes away. And that is just it's just one of those things that always has to be worked on every day. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit more about your upbringing, because I feel like parents who chose your name, it sounds like they chose it with intention. Um, I feel like your upbringing also may inform at least a part of, of who you are now as well. So how did you grow up? Where and how did you grow up? Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> you know, I grew up, as I often like to say, it's, it's funny, you know, trying to get into the habit of telling your own narrative and, and what does that mean? And that's something I've definitely worked on as well, trying to learn about how to tell my own narrative. And I often start off with saying that I grew up in Harlem during the crack, during the crack era, the crack epidemic in the eighties. And it's funny because I was, uh, I watched uh, the Michelle Obama uh, uh, documentary on, uh, on Netflix. And she says, you know, I'm from the South side of Chicago and that's pretty much 90% of what she needs to know about me. And, and I feel like that's, I feel like the same thing for me. It's like, if you, if someone has a, an understanding of Harlem, it, you know, in the 80s and the 90s, then you, then, then, then you understand to some degree, I think they would understand who, 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 who I am. So what, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is it was a tough uh, time in a lot of ways in that, you know, violence was high, crime was high. You know, I still remember being like six years old, walking down the street and, you know, there's crack vials underneath your feet. You know, the people who are uh, addicted to crack, you know, who said, 
call them crackheads, but at the t- you know at the time, but I realized now that that's probably not language we should be used to describe people. Um, so you know, people who were under the addiction and the influence and and the chain of 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 crack addiction, um, you know, zombies walking the street, you know, that that was that was the reality. My building I grew up in was not safe. The front door was constantly broken for people who were trying to get in to use the building as a space to do drugs. The top two floors of my building, uh, I grew up in a six-story building. I grew up on the first floor. The top two floors, I could not go up to as a kid. My parents, my mother said, you are not allowed to go up to the fifth or sixth floors because that is where the people are who are, who have basically taken it over to, to smoke crack. And you know, so that that had a real impact on me at the same time. So my parents who, you know, back in the day were revolutionaries uh, back in the day, you know, old school nation of Islam, um, you know, back when, you know, Minister Farrakhan was just rebuilding the nation uh, where, you know, we're really on the on the front lines in Harlem. Right. Mohammed Mosque number seven uh, on the front lines of that of that of that process. And they instilled a lot of pride in me around, around being black and, and, and a lot of pride around, um, you know, being a part of and being from the community and a sense of obligation to uplift, support the community that, that really informed and and shaped me at the same time, they sent me to schools downtown with predominantly white kids. Mm. So I grew up with this dichotomy of seeing like uh, inside my home, we had books on books on books. Right. We had Joanja Kanjufu and J.A. Rogers and, you know, we, we had, you know, uh, 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 Yvonne, um, uh, uh, Dr. Yvonne Van Sertema and, uh, you know, all of the, you know, all of the kind of the really um, what one, one could have said radical black thinkers um, of the of the era. Um, you know, our, our inside our home was was filled with that. And when I walk outside my my door, I would, you know. There was there was the ever present danger of what was going on in terms of uh, in terms of uh, of crime and, and, and crack and that sort of thing. And then I would go downtown to neighborhoods which the sidewalks were paved. Right. The trees <laughs> aligned the streets like like nice trees where there wasn't dog poop all over the place. Uh, and and so it was it was really this it was really this weird mix of having certain values instilled in the home living in a certain reality and then being sent to another reality and having to deal with trying to make these different puzzle pieces fit together into some kind of picture that that has made sense. And that's a, a, a journey that I'm still on in trying to make those different puzzle pieces make sense. But, but those are the pieces, I think, that have contributed to, to who I am um, as a person. And, and, and first and foremost, fundamentally, with a with a firm belief um, in in God first and first and foremost. So I'm sorry, I, I got to talking. I didn't even get to. I don't even know if I answered your question. No, but this that's what it's about. It's about you talking, not me. So <laughs> it's all good. We want to hear your story. Um, so that that's interesting because I never would have thought, based on the limited amount of information I have about your family dynamic, that you would have been sent to school. Uh, downtown. You don't often hear that when somebody classifies their parents as revolutionary and they were going to school, you know, these predominantly white institutions. But interestingly, you hold a BA from George Washington University. 
right? Yeah. Which you may or may not know is my law school alma mater. Oh, so, right, right, right. Yes. So <laughs> I know. I'm not gonna do the whole song. I'm not gonna do the whole song. I'm sorry. I just had to. And uh, you know, I I kind of wiped out in like the mascot category because I went right. to Penn undergrad with the Quakers and then the George Washington University, which was no better from a mascot perspective, right? Right. Uh, right. Colonials or what have you. So, um, yeah. so yeah, I was I was cracking up when I saw that. But what made you choose? GW because you know <laughs> what I know about GW even though I was there for an advanced degree not the most diverse place definitely an expensive school yeah. uh so coming from the home environment that you were in even though you had all this exposure and you were kind of hanging between two worlds what drove you there well there's a lot of different there's a lot of that that's almost like how far do you want to go back in time to see the trajectory uh, first and foremost, if, if I talk about GW, I, I have to give a shout out to uh, Michael Tapscott, director of the Multicultural Student Services Center, who was like a father figure uh, to me when I was there. And Helen Kennedy Solne, who um, was, I, I don't want to say like a mother figure because I don't want her to think that I'm trying to age her in a certain way because she's not, I don't think she could technically be my in, in a, a, an eternal way unless unless it was a really, you know, young, young pregnancy. but. Um, you know, but even before Mr. Tapscott got there, you know, Miss Kennedy was, has been, as far as I know, continues to be um, the bedrock for Black students in particular um, and students of color in general at, at GW. Um, so before I even talk about GW and, and my, my coming there in terms of, you know, my experiences as a, as a Black person, you know, Miss Kennedy, I, I always have to give her her flowers first and foremost, and uh, and also give flowers to to Mr. Tapscott as well. So how I got to GW? Well, I give you the, the really short version of it. <laughs> the short version is my college counselor said I should apply to these list of schools. GW happened to be on that list. They were the first school that sent me an acceptance, and they gave me the second best financial aid package. And uh, Howard lost my application. Wait, what? So I wanted to go to Howard University. Well, first of all, some of the other schools I tried to get into, like Brown, that didn't work. My SAT scores weren't banging like that. But so I didn't get into Brown and, and so whatever. But, but, you know, after not getting into Brown, I was like, well, you know, I want to go. I mean, primarily, I, I want to go to Howard. My, my older sister, I have two older sisters, one of them uh, went to Howard. And at, especially she was there, I think she was at Howard, I think, getting one of her, one of her degrees while I was in the college application process. So I said, I'll, I'll go to Howard. My sister Takia, she went to Howard. I'll go to Howard. It's a, I wanted to go to a, a university that was in a city. I didn't want to go in the suburbs in the middle of nowhere. I didn't want to do that anymore, having gone to boarding school. And I said, I'll go to Howard University and follow in this rich tradition. So I applied like everybody else. My mother put the check in for the application fee and all like that. The acceptances and rejections came back from all the different colleges, universities I applied to. And I remember in the spring of 1999, being in the uh, apartment with my mother as she was calling Howard University saying, we haven't heard anything. We have to make decisions. What's going on? And they told her that they could not find the application. They didn't have it. And then, and of course, I didn't, I wasn't on the, I didn't hear the whole, I only heard my mother's end of the conversation. So then my mother said, but I hear my mother saying, it's like, but you cashed our check. Well, actually said was, but you cashed my check. 
It's like you cashed my check. I have the I have the canceled check. You know, back when you you cash a check and you get the record from the bank. She's like, you you got the application clearly because you you, you took my money. So I don't understand why we don't have an acceptance or rejection. And they were like, well, sorry, man. We, you know, we don't have the application. So then my mother says, well, then can I get my money back? And they were like, I'm sorry, man. It's not refundable. <laughs> she was like, <laughs> She's like, wait a minute, 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 wait a minute. You got the check that was with the application. You're telling me you don't have the application. And instead of giving me the money back, which you clearly have, you're telling me you can't give it back because the application <laughs> that you didn't receive is not refundable. <laughs> so they, they, they gave her a portion of it because, you know, she, you know, my mother, she was she was like, nah, fam, not, we're not doing that. Not today. Um, so they gave me a portion of it and, um, and so I ended up going to GW. <laughs> That's the <I>, wildest thing <laughs> I have heard in a very long time. I didn't even want to go to GW. I'm not even going to lie. I'm not going to hold you. I did not want to go to GW. I did not want to go to GW. My mother wanted me to go. She was like, cause we went to tour the school mm-hmm. and she's like, oh, it's a nice school. Cause my sister was living in DC at the time. So, you know, she's like, well, you'll be close to your sister. It's a really nice school. And um, cause like you said, my parents had sent me to predominantly white schools for most of my life, right. To get a good education, right. We can get into all of that. Like, what does it mean to get a good education? And especially with limited resources that we have in a black community and, and what do we think a good education means? And so to my, in my mother's eyes, it was a, it was a great education. Um, and, you know, they, 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 the financial aid package, a combination of grants and, and work study and, and loans and all like that was a really good package. And so she wanted me to go to GW, um, but I, I, I really didn't want to go. But, um, you know, what, the money was good. You know, Howard, you know, I don't know what happened. Listen, if anyone from Howard is listening to this, and we can work something out where you let me in. I could, uh, I'll do another degree program if you, you know, if it's for free. You know, I would love to to, to say I'm a, I'm an alumni of of the Harvard of HBCUs. Um, but uh, but that's but that's what happened. That's why I ended up going to GW. You got ghosted by Howard. I, I really can't. I'm really stuck on this. Like that, <laughs> it's insane. And then people, when I tell the story, some people are like, "Oh, but you know how we are, fam. That sounds about right." See, what you're supposed to do, you're supposed to go down there. And like, no, like, no, like, why? Like, why we gotta make it hard? Like, GW sent me a real nice folder, had a little gold foil seal on it. You know, like they wanted me. I'm like, okay, yeah, this sounds just okay. All right, we can make this happen, I guess. And I even thought about transferring to Howard after my first year at GW, but you know, by that point. You know, you get into your classes, you get into your friends, you know, you just get into a certain rhythm. And so it's just kind of like, well, I'll just, you know, I'll just stay here. And then the crazy thing about GW was they they pulled a lot of the aid after the first year because that was how they did. They get you they, they get you in the door. And then um, that was back then. I don't know how it is now. But, um, you know, I, I know a lot of friends, a lot of friends, actually, who ended up in some financial trouble at GW because, you know, um, going in, you know, they it was looking right. But then to sustain it all four years um, was, was a, was a challenge in and of itself. And so some people, some people made it work and some people didn't come back. So that's how, but anyway, that's how I ended up at GW. Well, I have my own strong, uh, strong thoughts about GW's financial aid department, but anyway, (laughs) we're not going to go down that path today. Oh, shout out to Christian Lewis. I don't know where you are in life. If you, as you ever get to hear this podcast, Christian Lewis, brother, good black man, he worked in the financial aid office. He personally looked out for me. Mm. Personally. If he hadn't personally looked out for me, 
I may not have graduated from GW because because the A package I got my freshman year was not the same A package I got in the following years. And I remember he specifically, I remember talking to him, he specifically looked out and he was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to help you. And, and of course, Ms. Helen Kennedy, Sony and, and my top scout and all the other folks, like I said, I definitely want to give them their flowers as well. But but Christian Lewis, I've been in the financial aid office. Um, I know he looked out for me. And so and so thank you, Christian Lewis. I, I always remember what, what you did uh, for me. So. And, you know, it's, it's funny you bring that up because I have my own stories, of course, about like champions at Penn and how I made it through, you know, that time financially and just remaining mentally healthy and all of that. But when um, teenagers and like young 20 somethings come to me with it and ask for advice because they're struggling in school, they got to get money together. You know, something's not working out. One of my first questions is always, well, who have you talked to? Did you have you gone to the office? Have you met somebody? Have you gotten a specific name? Because to overcome these kinds of obstacles, often you need an advocate, somebody who's able to humanize you and see you as a person who's really, really trying as opposed to just another student ID number. Right. And without those relationships, it can be very difficult, particularly for those who are not coming from the best socioeconomic standpoint, uh, for those of us who make up a really small minority uh, at these PWIs and, you know, HBCUs have their own problems <laughs> with financial aid, as I know, for a lot of friends. But that's very important um, to forge those relationships and make sure that you find people who can be an ally and help you to get through that. And that that's just one of my gripes about sort of where we moved as a culture. I think a lot of those soft skills are getting lost. The relationship building mm-hmm. and making sure you have that Rolodex that you call on mm-hmm. uh, when things go awry, for sure. In, in a real relationship, like just because we friends on Facebook, just because we're connected on LinkedIn, just because I follow you on Instagram, don't mean we friends. Like that doesn't like that. Like that's not what that, you know, and I think, like you said, in today's day and age, it's, it's very easy to think that um, virtual proximity equals real relationship. And, right. and it's not the same thing. And, and to your, to your, further to your other point, one of the primary lessons I learned from the George Washington University wasn't anything I learned in, in the classroom. It's what I learned outside the classroom. It was, it is not what you know, it is who you know. There were students there who got 4.0 GPAs and would, were knocking it out the box. And when they ran into whatever trouble or situation um, or, or whatever struggle that they may have had academically or, or otherwise, uh, if they didn't know anyone, it was like they were drifting. And I knew other people who GPAs was good enough. Like, you know what I mean? They, like they weren't failing out, but, but they were just good enough. But because they had spent so much time making connections and, and doing things and whether it was clubs or, or working with the administration on different, pro- just, just doing, just, just being involved in the loop. It was just like, no problem. I mean, not no problem. We all have problems, but it was just a different, it, it, it was a different world trying to navigate things from, from those who knew people and those who didn't. And so that's what GW really taught me uh, in a lot of ways is that in this world is it's not what you know, but it is who you know. Absolutely. For sure. So you make the decision to stay at GW. I did. Finish out your uh, your BA there, uh, BA in American Studies and minor in Africana Studies. What was your vision uh, for your professional journey post GW? I didn't know. Okay. I, I did not. So one thing that I, I, I'll drop on you, and I don't know if you know this because it's not anything that I have in my bio or my resume. Um, but the last, so I ended up graduating in 2004. 
I was supposed to graduate in 2003, like mm. in 99. But while at GW, I slipped into a very deep clinical depression. Wow. In which I ended up having to withdraw from coursework in my senior year and ended up having to come back and finish. And that's why I graduated in 2004. So the question of what was my vision for what life was going to be like after graduation, you know, after a certain point, I guess, you know, freshman, sophomore, in the beginning of junior year, I figured I'd just go to grad school anyway. That would just seem to be the natural next step. Once I started to slide into depression, it was just stay alive. Yeah. And to be quite honest, you know, and, and fight off the suicidal ideations and, and, and despair and despondency, you know, it was just at that time, you know, it was just exist. It was just get out the door, like get this degree. Um, Cause that was really important to me. So it was really just about, let's just get this degree and then, and then just stay alive and try to, try to figure out how to exist in the world. That, that was my, that was, that was my goal. <laughs> so let's, so that, you know, I didn't know that piece of your story and, but let's unpack that yeah. a little bit. Right. Okay, um, okay. I think clinical depression is super undiagnosed, particularly yes. in our community. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we, we tend to classify it as going through a rough patch or I just been down or, you know, what have you, or, or homeboy lost it. Like we never use, you know, I shouldn't say never, but we often do not use um, that, that clinical language. So what happened and for you to reach that point or did something trigger it? And also how did you reach that diagnosis? Uh, are you asking me about how did I reach the point of being depressed or how did I reach the point of realizing I had depression? Let's go, let's go with both then. Oh. Let's, let's start with realize it. Let's get into all of it. Why not? Oh man. How much, how much time that we have? Cause this, this is going to be uh, people are listening right now. Like, Oh, here we go. How, how much time they said this podcast is going to last. This is going to be a five part series. Um, so listen, uh, you know, thinking about and some, this is some stuff that, that I've, I've talked about publicly before because I do think it's important for all people to talk about mental health, but especially Black people and especially Black men, especially the Hotepian, cisgendered, masculine, presenting, heterosexual, strong Black men. Of, and, and I do think I come out of that tradition to, to various degrees, right? Um, we need to be real about our own mental. It's not a white thing. It's not the white man's trick, right? Like this is, no, this is, it's, mental health is a real thing. I did not know about mental health. I, my, now, it, it, I do have some family history behind that. And, and, and now, uh, those are other people's stories that they can tell themselves. But so I do have some family history around it, but it was never something that I really saw for myself. I, I mentioned I went to boarding school for high school. There is a, a counselor on staff and I used to go frequent the counselor's office, but a lot of people be, frequented the counselor's office. Depression and mental health seem like a white thing. That's oh, that's for white kids. You know that, you know, they got problems. They, they soft. They know how to deal in the world. We, we go through a lot as black people. You know, we strong. We know how to handle things. Our ancestors came through this, this, that, and the third. So ain't nothing to be depressed about, right? All of that. What ended up happening was it, it was a series of events, right? It was losing family. In addition to whatever genetic predisposition I may have had and whatever family history, right? And we, epigenetics is also a thing, right? I think just being Black in America makes you predisposed to depression, which is a conversation we can get into as well. 
So there's all of that macro context, um, it, but there was also September 11th happening. Um, and, and, and there were a lot of challenges around that at the time, being in DC, right, with, and all that, but being from New York and, and having that go on. I lost a number of um, senior or, or elderly family members in rapid succession over a two-year period from grandparents to, to, to great uncles that, that all happened around that same time. Um, there's some other things I was, I was doing, uh, I think, which, which I don't want to get into in, in a public way, uh, <laughs> but, but I think that, that contributed uh, to, uh, you know, to, to this whole depressive recipe. And what ended up happening was it was my junior year and I found it difficult to focus on schoolwork. And then I found it difficult to try to focus on schoolwork. Like my effort wasn't into trying. My effort wasn't trying to try. Mm-hmm. And that was new for me. Right. It's one thing to try to do something you don't understand. It's one thing to try to do something that's difficult. Right. We're all this. That's one thing. But it's, it was difficult. It was different for me to have difficulty putting in effort to put in effort. You, you, you know what I'm saying? And so it was a very, it was a very gradual slide from not handing in assignments to then just not going to class to just staying in my dorm room all day. Uh, I started really getting into uh, smoking uh, weed more and drinking and that's how I know a lot of people got depression. People mm-hmm. say, I'm good, but you smoke a blunt every day. Cannot like, function without it. Right. Yeah. Oh, no, nah, I'm just, you know, I'm just, or like people who go to happy hour every day after work. You know, the, I, now I look back and I realize that is, that's what we call self-medication, right? So, so I was self-medicating. I was, you know, slowly disentangling from activities, slowly disentangling from friends you know, not taking care of myself, not getting haircuts. Um, my friends didn't understand what was going on. They started looking at me weird, um, you know, and then some of them started to draw back from me because they didn't know what, they didn't know what to do. They didn't, they didn't know what was going on. We're all what, 20, 21, 22, whatever, you know, they didn't know what to do. And so I got to a point whereas, you know, I, um, I remember going to my advisor at the time, Melanie McAllister, and I had to give her her flowers because if it wasn't for Melanie McAllister uh, on an academic level, I definitely would have gra- wouldn't have graduated from GW without a doubt. Um, she is the reason why I became an American Studies major because she was a professor in the American Studies department, and she was my freshman advisor, like only like your first advisor that you get to just help you navigate the rest of the university. And she was dope, and she was cool, and I was you know looking for different majors, and she was like, "Why don't you try this American Studies?" You know, because that was her field. And, and, it, and, it, was, and it, was, it was really dope. So I have to give a shout out to Melanie McAllister. I remember to this day sitting in Melanie's office and telling her, I'm trying hard to try and I don't understand. And I remember her just leaning over to me and said, Talib, I think you have depression. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's, I, she was like, yeah. and, and, and then from there, I went to the university counseling service and um, started getting some, 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 some treatment there, some therapy. And, and the timeline's kind of fuzzy, to be honest, because that whole time of being in a depressive state, there's a lot, I think, that either, either I just don't remember or my brain is just kind of blacked out, to be honest. Um, it's weird how that, how that works, how you just kind of lose memories. Um, so I'm forgetting the timeline a bit, but I had a, I do remember having right, that, that major depressive episode and uh, 
Then I had a second major depressive. Oh, then a year later, I had a second major. So what happened was I had that major depressive episode, got into got into counseling because university counseling, they only give you a limited number of sessions. I started and I got and then I got into Miss Helen Kennedy Solney recommended to me a black woman in her professional network, uh, Dr. Barbara Brown. Uh, shout out to Dr. Barbara Brown. Without Dr. Brown, if you ever listen to this, you are phenomenal. And um, I, I, I literally don't know where I would be or if I was, would be here if, if it wasn't for your, for, your, uh, for your support. So, you know, Miss Helen Kennedy Sony, uh, you know, knew Dr. Barbara Brown and say, I want you to go check, check out Dr. Brown. And so, you know, having a black woman therapist um, was, was very helpful to me. And, and now when I, when I, whenever I go into therapy, I specifically recommend a black person, um, man or woman, either way. Uh, but I, I need somebody black, you know, like Issa said, I'm rooting for everybody. Black. Um, and so I, I was able to get through, I was able to get through that last year of school between Melanie McAllister helping me out academically and, and just really supporting me in that way. And, uh, then I had a second major depressive episode, uh, after I ended up graduating um, and the timeline is, is fuzzy. I'm trying to think because there was a certain point and I can't remember if it, it was the, it was that summer, was it that summer I'm, I'm, I'm losing the, the, the timeline, but I had a, uh, one of my, one of my very best friends, uh, Kate Wolfson, shout out to Kate, um, who, who I, I, you know, have told her that she helped, that, that she saved my life because as I said, a lot of my friends didn't know what to do. And, and Kate basically, took me in. Um, there was a period in which I cut myself. I cut my arm because I was trying to, I wanted to see what it was like for me to cut my wrist. Mm. And I had a, a serrated knife and, you know, the, the wrist, the skin on the wrist is very like, it's like thin. So it's like sensitive. So it hurt. So I was like, well, I don't want to do that. So I moved up the arm to kind of see if I could kind of get used to the, to the pain. And, uh, and then something in my mind is like this, like other perspective that's like still me but like looking at myself do this thing it's like to leave something in right here fam i don't know fam like this don't look right this don't look right to us you know what i mean so i'm looking at myself like yo what are you what are you doing and as i reached out to my friend kate at the time and um and then from that moment for several years like she basically just made sure that like you know maybe not several years at least a couple years you know, she made sure that like, you know, I was good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Good as in like, you know, not <laughs> taking myself out, uh, taking myself out in this world. And so, you know, th- there have been a lot of people uh, who, you know, a whole tribe of folks who I, you know, owe a debt of gratitude for for being there for me at, at various points in my life. But at that point, at that point in particular, so I had that first major depressive episode was able to get through GW and and get the and get the degree, get the BA. Then I immediately jumped into grad school, which was a mistake. I jumped straight into grad school in the fall. I was at the tracking well before I was attracting Bird School, which is the School of Public Policy at GW. So I was interested in public policy. I was going from public administration. And then I ended up having a second major depressive episode, which in some ways was um I don't want to say worse, but uh, you know, that's when I was like really going off the deep end to, to certain respects. And I ended up uh, pulling out of school, taking a medical withdrawal and doing an outpatient therapy program at Georgetown University Hospital. Um, and, uh, and that, and, uh, you know, that was, um, and, I'm, and, I, and I'm so grateful that I had those resources, right? You think about so many folk, especially in our communities, who aren't able to just go to George Washington, actually it was Georgetown, sorry. I went to not, not GW, Georgetown 
University Hospital because they had the outpatient program that, that took our insurance. And so to be able to go to, to Georgetown uh, for their outpatient therapy program or to be able to get therapy from Dr. Barbara Brown or, or have people look after me in, in that kind of way. You know, I don't know what my life would be like if I did not have those that support system and that support network uh, in place. And so after so after that, um, you know, that that is, you know, is then the the next phase of my of my growth from around that 2004 period um, to, to, to where I am today. I mean, there's different phases and sections in that story, of course. But that's that's kind of that that, you know, um, the chapters of college and immediately after college. That's that's kind of where that's that's that section um, of my life. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up how many key players contributed to you uh, moving through that season and, and coming out victorious, because I think in our communities, there's not enough conversation from the majority and from us about what it takes to move past uh, mental health challenges, emotional challenges, et cetera. And it really does often take a multifaceted approach to be able to get well. And many, to your point, many of us don't have the resources to do that. And you look at the, the trajectory that somebody's life can take and the choices they may make when they don't have that support system to help them navigate that. And I wish there was just more nuanced conversations that were had about why people make the choices that they do and why certain issues exist in our communities. And a lot of it, I think, has to do with, I, I do think just by being Black can cause depression. There are PTSD issues. There are many things at play here that contribute to the behaviors and certain actions and our ideologies about things. And particularly with everything that's going on in the world, um, it's a great disservice to make these sweeping generalizations about the way people are reacting without talking about the societal forces and some of the issues that we have to deal with um, as communities of color, as Black folks, that contribute to the way that we respond in moments of trauma or distress. Word. Like I have a, like many Black folk, there's a liquor store on the corner mm -hmm. and there's another liquor store on the, on, the other, <laughs> on the other street. Of course. And, you know, you see people out there, you know, on the way to work already lined up outside the liquor store. You know, because now we've got to socially distance. So people are actually literally lined up. Getting, you know, some some people just playing lotto, but other people are going for other reasons. And it's like, listen, if you if it's if it's like 8 a.m. and you already need that fix, like we, we got some real mental. The, the fact that there's a there's such a demand that there can be this many liquor stores. Right. In and of itself says something. Mm -hmm. Right. Why is that? Listen, I know a lot of people who like wine. If you put five different wine stores all on the same block, right? Like you not that's that might not be the right thing to do from a business perspective. There are so many liquor stores, and it's like why? Why are do people feel the need to self medicate? And and having I think one of the maybe benefits isn't the right word, but you know, in, in in trying to process and think through the purpose and you know how do what do you learn from the situation and and what I've you know, how do I learn from what I went through in depression? And, you know, how, and how do I keep learning given that, you know, I feel like depression is one of those things where you're never just, oh, I'm past that. It's like, nah, fam, it's always something that you always have to work on. And I think one of the things that I've learned from that is learning about self-medication and learning and seeing the signs of people who are trying to cope with an existential crisis of how to be in the world. 
especially when they're trying to learn how to be in the world that they feel does not want them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd say that I'm a, I'm not a, a psychologist by training in any way. So I'm not, I'm not out here diagnosing everybody, but it says something when people are lined up outside the liquor store early in the morning. I don't need a degree to tell me that. Right. Absolutely. Uh, so at some point, though, you find your way uh, professionally to working in a number of different areas. You've been involved in legislative affairs, federal economic development policy, community based programs, et cetera. How did you come to that work? It's a great question. So so actually, I'll just pick up and, and you and pick up from from just pick up the story because mm-hmm. actually it's a direct transition. And I'll, I'll let you do what you do on the, on the editing side for, for length and time and all like that kind of stuff. So in 2004, right, after I withdraw and I do this outpatient program, it's like, okay, I need money. I need a job. So I went to a temp agency. I was applying, you know, all sorts of stuff and on Craigslist and all that kind of stuff um, back when people use Craigslist to find jobs and stuff. And I went to this temp agency and I got placed at this organization called the International Economic Development Council down in, in Washington, D.C. It's a professional association for, for economic development professionals. And they brought me there. In November of 2004, because they would send out uh, uh, White House ornaments, like the tree ornaments, as like a, a like a Christmas um, gift to to like board members and, and and different people in the in the organization and and that kind of thing. You know what I mean? You know, nice. You know, it's, it's an, one of those nice touches kind of thing. You know what I mean? And they needed someone to wrap to to wrap them and label them, and so they could get sent out. So they got a, they got attempt to do that work. I'm like, okay, cool. So I remember they sat me down in this cubicle with this huge box of this huge box of White House ornaments and this rolls of wrapping paper and scotch tape. And they were like, we just need you to sit there and just wrap these gifts all day. And so that's what I did. And throughout the day, people would come over to me like, I'm so sorry. We just, this is all we have for you is just to wrap these gifts. I know this is like not, you know, you have a degree or whatever. But at the time, that's all I could do. I loved it. So I just got to say, I'm going to talk to nobody. You just want me to just sit here wrap these gifts, you know, give me a check. And that's what I just do all day. And that's just where I was at that point. It was like, it was, it was God's blessing because with each gift, I had to figure out how do I wrap this gift better than the last one. Mm-hmm. And I got pretty good at, at wrapping. I, I lost a little, my, little bit of my gift wrapping skill, you know, in the time, in the years since then. But after a while, I got really good at wrapping because it was the same box. It was, literally the, it was like a hundreds or whatever, literally the same box, just wrapping another box, another box over and over. And as I was wrapping each gift and getting better, I, it helped me to build my confidence and it helped me to just not focus on so many other things in the world, especially when my thoughts are already racing and just focus on this one thing. Just come in and just, just do this one thing today. Just wrap these gifts. And that was really influential um, and important for, for that point in my life. And again, to, to the point about mental health, sometimes we, we get to a point that you know, depending on what's going on in our life, well, we just might be able to do just one thing and that is okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? That is the victory, you know? And so being able to, to do that really helped that that turned into a permanent position um, at the organization. Cause they were like, wow, you're a really good gift wrapper. Like the way, like the way you put yourself into this, like, wow. You know what I mean? Like, cause I, I applied myself, <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I just, I didn't look at that as being beneath me. I didn't look at it as being, you know, I'm too good for this. I was like, this is just what I need. And I'm going to be the best doggone gift wrapper that they've ever seen. You know what I mean? And so 
and then now we're like, well, if you can do that, or well, maybe you can do this. And so I started doing some other stuff, you know, copying and whatever. And they're like, okay, maybe you can do this. And so it kind of helped me start to develop my confidence a little bit, um, even though my, my time there at, at IEDC in some ways was challenging because that was really my first kind of white collar office job out of, out of school and trying to just learn about how to be a, a good professional in the work world, the, you know, the dynamics of when working in an office and the dynamics of working with different, different generations and different expectations that people have. Um, also at the same time of just trying to still, you know, fight off this depression and anxiety that I was dealing with, right. All of that at the same time was, was, was a bit of a, was a bit of a challenge. Uh, but it, you know, there was, um, I, I, I feel that I got such a tremendous, uh, opportunity, uh, working there that, that I am grateful for despite the challenges of, um, uh, of that time. And there are so many people there um, in many different ways uh, who, and I don't want to start naming people because I'm going to leave somebody out inevitably, um, but, but, who, but who really helped me out. But I do have to shout out Jill Frick, who um, was one of my managers, because Jill, not only was I able to confide in her about my depression at the time, and as a manager, she was very supportive, uh, but she then also helped teach me lessons about management and leadership that I have used in my own career mm-hmm. um, today. And so there's, again, there's so many people. And if anyone from IEDC is listening and said, well, why didn't Talib say something about me? Um, it's, it's not because I don't want to. It's just, I, 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 you know, once you go down that road, someone's going to get left out eventually. But I think, uh, you know, the, the lessons that we're talking about today in terms of management in particular and in careers and networking and navigating life, um, I, I do feel some sense of obligation to, to shout out Joe because I basically took what she taught me and, I'm using it for other for other folks. Uh, and as I said, she really helped me. You know, there were some times when I just didn't have it. I just didn't have it that day. And, you know, and and she covered and made sure that, you know, that it was that it was OK. Um, and so and so from there, um, you know, having that experience and getting better and and learning how to take care of myself better, learning how to you know get haircuts more regularly, better learn how to step up my my professional dress game better, you know, as I was started to fight and come out of this depressive cloud and, and, and learn how to present myself better to the world as I start to feel better about myself. Like all that is, is a, is a journey that people don't see from the outside when you see someone walking to work one day and why do they look like that or why are they dressed like that? And, and so, um, that was, uh, it was a journey for me. I got a great opportunity to move into legislative affairs at IEDC, and, and I do want to thank them and, and thank uh, Jeff Finkel, who's the still the the head of IEDC, for for giving me that opportunity because I really didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. I was interested in the work. I was really interested in the work. This is, I, I was really interested in policy. Like I've been really interested in policy for a long time, and they gave me the opportunity, and and I made so many mistakes. Um, or, you know, on that, on that path and, and while working there and, and trying to navigate dealing with mistakes and while also trying to navigate dealing with my own mental health challenges was, a, was a lot, but it, it, it helped teach me about making mistakes. It helped teach me about how to persevere, even when times seem difficult and not running from challenges and staying focused on, on the goal. And even when it seems like, you know, as a poem I, I learned, even when, you know, it seems like everyone's losing their head around you and blaming it on you, you know, really learning how to stay the course and say, but this is what I want. This is what I want ultimately. And so from, from there, 
I, I knew that a lot, a bunch of my colleagues at IEDC already had master's degrees. I did not have a master's degree at the time, right? I had this this history of having left a master's program, you know, mm-hmm. six weeks or so into it, and and not really feeling comfortable at that time to really tell that whole story, not knowing how to do it in a way that I can do it now. And, and, you know, there's feelings of inadequacy. And of course, that go along with that. Am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Um, you know, I, maybe I couldn't make it at GW. Maybe it was too hard. All the, most of the other people in my cohort at GW were white, right? So maybe it wasn't a depression. Maybe it's just me. Maybe GW let me in to their, uh, you know, public administration program at a charity because I was undergrad. You know, I don't know, right? Your mind starts thinking all these things and the whole imposter syndrome and all like that kind of stuff. But I knew I wanted to have an impact on the Black community in particular. At IEDC, I learned more about urban development and urban policy. I didn't know about economic development and, and urban policy. I didn't know that when I was a kid and I would walk down 145th Street from Broadway over to Lenox and see the abandoned buildings and the empty lots, I didn't know that that was in large part a result of, of policies and decisions that people made. You know, so 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 working at IEDC and learning about economic development and urban policy helped give me a framework to understand the things that I saw as being wrong as a child, mm-hmm. right? As a child, like as I said, growing up in Harlem and seeing my community look one way and going downtown these different schools and seeing the difference and just knowing as a kid something is not right here, something is not something is fundamentally unfair. Why is this, and what can we do to change it? And then now having a language and a framework to understand that there are actual policies and programs and decisions that go into why things are the way they are, that led me to say, well, I want a master's degree. Let me go get a degree in, in public policy. Um, and, and, uh, and like I said, I, before I, I had like the public administration, so I was interested in that, in that field. Now, several years later, having had this work experience, having been able to to do the work I was doing with legislative affairs on economic development, it gave me a more clear um, concept of the kind of impact and the kind of change that I wanted to make. And so I would also advocate for anyone who is thinking about graduate school. Uh, I think it definitely makes a lot of sense to get some work experience first because it'll make the degree program that much more um, that much more valuable because you'll have a better sense, at least in my experience, a better sense of what you really want and what you want to get out of it. So I went, so I, I applied to the new school uh, here in New York City. I, I wanted to come back home to Harlem because Harlem was gentrifying and I wanted to be in the community. I felt like I was at GW, even at the apartment that I had was still pretty much on campus. I mean, GW is like Columbia, like NYU is, is like, it's like a campus, but not really a campus, just, just a city. But I knew that I wanted to be in the community, but I didn't. But I'm not from D.C. I'm not a Washingtonian. And although that there are some very common issues that Black folk go over, go go through throughout the country, I didn't feel that it would be it wouldn't be appropriate for me to try to move up and in, into in leadership, so to speak, in D.C. I'm not from D.C. Right? It's people from D.C. can address D.C.'s problems, right? Mm-hmm. Or or county or whatever like that. I don't want to be the outsider coming in, even though D.C. is the kind of place a lot of people do move there and, and become part of the community. I felt like I'm from Harlem. Harlem's got all these issues, especially we're talking about like the mid to late 2000s with gentrification. Like I, I got to help out home. I got to help out that same little boy like my, you know, looking at myself was wondering why his community is different. Right. So 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 that's where I got to go. So I came back home. I, I, I got my uh, I started working on getting my master's in urban policy at the new school. 
I'm thinking I'm going to go into community development, economic development, some kind of, you no, know, you know, building black businesses and doing all like that kind of stuff. A friend of mine, uh, Joe Rogers, who runs Total Equity now, was doing some workshops with youth, what he called a conscious gear expos, where, where youth would talk about issues that are important to them that they're seeing in their own community and then develop a, a kind of slogan to, to uh, educate policymakers and decision makers on the issue. Um, and then we put it on a t-shirt at the end of the day. So it's, like, so it's conscious gear, like you're making conscious gear, right? So I did a couple of these workshops with Joe because he asked me to help facilitate them. And these are like, you know, teenagers, maybe on middle school, high school. And one of the things I kept hearing from them was afraid of being shot, afraid of getting jumped, afraid of like gangs and crews and that kind of stuff. And now I'm sitting here at this policy school and we talk about taxes and budget. We're talking about education. We're talking about the new Jim Crow had just dropped, right? So we're talking about mass incarceration. And I'm like, but the kids are saying they're afraid to walk down the street. Mm-hmm. Why aren't we talking about that from a policy perspective? So then that shifted my trajectory, not in an intentional way, but just as I was coming into it, coming and coming back home to the community thinking, how can I serve? And thinking and, and seeing that, wow, like this is what the kids are saying and the adults are not talking about this. We need to address this issue, um, this issue of community violence, urban violence, street violence, right, that, that we're talking about. So from there, at, while I was at the new school, I was able to put together uh, a, a panel, a policy discussion on, called Combating Youth Violence, which is on YouTube. Check it out on my LinkedIn page. And in that, uh, in that by, doing, by putting that panel together, you know, I was brought in touch with David Kennedy, the head of the National Network for Safe Communities, right? I was brought in touch with Aisha Seku, who has Street Corner Resources. I was brought in touch with Marlon Peterson, right, who, who has gone on to be uh, a, a, a really uh, fierce um, activist um, around, around a lot of justice issues, um, right? And so, and so I, was, I was also put in contact with Commissioner Kevin O'Connor from NYPD and Melissa Marvarito, who would then become the speaker of the New York City Council. Um, a few years after that, uh, and also Rianne Charles, who was a, a youth, because I really wanted to make sure we had a youth perspective. So I, that's why I got in contact with Yo SOS, who's saving our streets out in uh, out in Brooklyn, and how I connected with Marlon. And so that, and so doing that actually set up basically the rest of my career trajectory to this point. Doing that, of doing that event, the people that I came in contact with, doing that event. Uh, and it wasn't because I didn't do it for career purposes. I just did it because I knew that the kids are talking about afraid of getting shot. And we're sitting here talking about education policy and, and taxes and, and all these other things that we're talking about. But we're not talking about what the kids are talking about. So something's missing. Um, and, and so from there, I started working. You know, I heard I say who speak and I'd heard about her. And I said, I told her, I said, listen, I want to, I want to work with you. I, w- I want to do, I want to support you. I want to do what you do. And so she took me under her wing. And, you know, from, for, for, from there, she became uh, an amazing friend and mentor and taught me about community organizing and activism um, around anti-gun and gang violence. We did Occupy the Corners together uh, where, you know, we would be out on the corner of 129th Street and 7th Avenue, uh, where was the, 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 the location of a, of a shooting, a young man named Akeem Green who had actually returned home from overseas in the military from, from I think, I think it was from Morocco, Afghanistan, and ended up getting killed right there on 129th Street and 7th Avenue. Um, and, and so, and so, you know, she let me be the co-host of her radio show, Street Corner Resources Live. Uh, and, you know, we went 
all over the place, you know, all over Harlem and, 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 uh, and sometimes other parts of the city talking about anti-violence work and, and community healing work. Uh, and then from, you know, but we had no money. Like we literally had no money, like no, I like guess on my resume, cause it was real work, but I never got paid because there was no money. There's no money to pay me. So, so at a certain point I needed money. Uh, and I, I, as I ended up at the Manhattan district attorney's office, uh, uh, starting as a reentry coordinator, um, and then and then moving into the position of deputy director of of uh, community partnerships unit. Uh, but but so much of that goes back to, you know, being in that and getting into that anti-violence space. I never really wanted to be in criminal justice. It just wasn't the area I wanted to be in. And I still don't see myself as a criminal justice person. Um, I just see myself as being someone who is trying to respond to the needs of my community, um, you know, listening to what you know, people are saying, listening to what the youth are saying. And so that's, and so sometimes I still think about economic development and that's still a passion uh, for me in some ways and community development. But I really do believe these, these things are all connected. They're not separate issues. You know, as I said, who get, you know, the decision to, ha- you, I mean, there are laws which could say they didn't have, they didn't have to be, you know, you could, you could zone an area to not have the as number of liquor stores that we do. We could, you could do that. You know, there's zoning regulations that talk about the height of buildings, the density of neighborhoods, right? These are these are all these are all policies, right? Mm-hmm. These are all that, that talk about how housing should be or could be, how much space is allocated, what the conditions of the housing building should be. There are are laws and policies that talk about lending and who gets business loans, who doesn't get business loans, right? There's laws and policies about what what what's legal or illegal, right? And what even if it's legal or illegal, what the what the penalty should be. Should it be a fine? Should it be incarceration? Uh, right. So all of these things come together. And of course, there's laws and policies about schools, how they get funded, how many kids should be in that school, who was trained and equipped to even teach in that school. Where should that school be located? What else should be located near that school? Like maybe a liquor store or a dumpster or a, uh, a, a sanitation disposal unit. And how many of those are located in the area? Right. So, so these are all interconnected uh, pieces. And so I, you know, I've chosen to to kind of hone in on the the anti-violence space uh, more so in, in in the past ten years or so. Uh, but but to me, you know, when I think about policy, uh, it, this these these things are all inter- interconnected, and and I do see my future trajectory, God willing, as you know, looking more toward you know, putting those pieces together. But uh, but that's kind of that's kind of how I got all those different aspects um, on there. It's, it's it's all part of this larger picture of serving urban black communities in particular it's it's really all about if you look at my career trajectory it's really about that five-year-old six-year-old little boy who is growing up in harlem hearing gunshots hearing his mother tell him to get on the floor when gunshots ring out seeing people addicted to drugs around him in the neighborhood going downtown to different neighborhoods in nice with nice schools with classmates who live on West End Avenue, buildings with doormen and streets that get repaved on a regular basis and seeing abandoned buildings and abandoned lots. And that little boy can't figure out why that is. Mm-hmm. And how can we, and not just not why is that, but what do we do to change that? That's that, that little boy is thinking, how do we change a story. I was in a car with my father, again, driving down 145th Street. And I remember seeing these abandoned buildings. And I remember looking at, thinking about 
seeing people on the street who are homeless. And in my mind, I think I was eight, I was like, well, what we can do is we can have people who are homeless, they can fix up the buildings, then they can live in them, right? Like, of course, there's Habitat Humanity and there's like also, right? But, but you, could, you could do that. There, there are policies around that. You could do that, right? Mm-hmm. But that's me as a little boy thinking, why do we have buildings that have nobody living in them and people don't have anywhere to live? Make it make sense to me. Because as a kid, you don't know all the... As a kid, all I know is I see a building that is falling apart, that's abandoned, it's, it's, it's burned out, it's, you know, all it is is a wall on two sides or three sides, and then I see a bunch of people on the street who have nowhere to go. Make it make sense to me. And so, really, that's, that's what my career and my life has been about, is, is, that, is that little boy saying, make it make sense to me, and how do we fix this? Well, I've got a couple of questions on that, um, because having that as a focus and a passion from the time you were a child to then going to school and studying all of these things and having now an intellectual capability to have um, an informed opinion about that. And then working in these spaces, which we know may or may not have the best of intentions, but don't always execute an effective way. Have you become jaded about the ability uh, to work within the institutions that we have now, like the DA's office, to reduce violent recidivism or partner with the community in an effective way to rectify some of these issues? Have I become jaded to working within institutions to create social change? Yes. I want to pull apart that question if possible. I I think that's not the right question. I think that question, there's always that question, right? Do you play the inside game or the outside game, right? There's this, you right? You and I think what we have to realize, when I say we, I mean, we, we, as, we as a people, I'm speaking to, to Black folk in particular, right? That what we are up against is white supremacy. Mm-hmm. It is not any one particular institution. It is not one particular policy. It is a mindset. It is a way of thinking that has been developed over centuries for power. So coming from that perspective, I think what I have learned from you know my experience of you know lot, being in lots of different institutions, it's not that I'm jaded. I think I think that it's I'm more aware now of what the situation is. Mm-hmm. So someone wanting to make a great amount of social change in the you know in the black community in particular, and wants to do that by working inside you know, pick, pick whatever institution that you want to pick, you know, deal with you know, any department of education in any city in, in, in this country or any district attorney's office around this country or anything, anything, what, what have you. Any change is going to be limited to the amount of pushback from the white supremacist structure in which we live. Mm. And if someone doesn't understand that, then they're going to either be co-opted by the system or yes, they're going to end up jaded and bitter, um, or, bur- or or totally burned out. And, and we see and we see that we see the, that that range of folks. If you look at folks, um, you know, folks who you know who are, you know, maybe a little bit past middle age or, or older who have spent lots of times in these institutions. You know, oftentimes people are either very connected and supportive of that institution. Oh, it's not really as bad as you think. They are despondent about that institution and like, oh, well, it never was going to work. Whether it's burned out completely and I'm like, it's not my fight anymore. Mm-hmm. I've done what I did, right? That, I mean, that's my experience. That, 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 that's what I've seen. Um, and so 
you know, what, what I, I think when I went into the district attorney's office, I mean, I knew that I was not going to come in and, and change the world, particularly not from the position that, that, that I was in. Um, I, I don't think I had as clear of an understanding of how deep the rabbit hole goes, to, to use a line that Morpheus used in the, in the Matrix. And that, again, is not to say anything about anyone, any individual in the district attorney's office, right? Because again, it's not about, when we, and we talk about this, these conversations around social justice, social upheaval, what's going on in the movement, what's going on in, in, in the world. We tend to say, oh, well, if a DA's office or a police department or some other agency does something that is harmful, it's all the fault of the people who are there right now, right? They have done this. It's like, no, 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 that's not how this works. This is, this, these are systems that have been built and constructed and run for centuries. It would, be, it would be the height of arrogance for any one person to think they're going to dismantle entire systems by the sheer force of their own will in their own lifetime. I don't, red, black, green, I don't care who you are, where you're from, how much money you have, how Anglo-Saxon your, your family history is and old money, whatever. It, it, you know, it, it is, that's just not the case. The only way to do it is for us to do it collectively, right? And to clear out and focus on what the challenges are. I think what's, for lack of a better word, good or, or positive about the present moment is I think we are seeing some of that um, now, but we've also seen this movie before in the 60s, right? We've seen this movie before in the 1800s, right? We see these cycles of history happen over and over and over again. So again, being clear-eyed, like you talked about, I forgot the example that you said that, you know, you said some example earlier when we were talking about, wow, well, maybe people realize something, something's different now. What, what stuck out to me was Aunt Jemima, mm -hmm. you know, Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben, like what? Quaker's gonna, gonna do, Quaker just found out that Aunt Jemima's racist, right? What? Like, this is crazy, right? So that's the thing that's really, that's the thing to me that feels different than before. It's like, people have been talking about Aunt Jemima being racist since Aunt Jemima was Aunt Jemima. Like, this is not new, right? But now all of a sudden there's this reala realization that, oh, maybe that's not okay. And it's like, well, when did we figure this out? You know, people have been saying this for, for, for over the hundred or so years, right? For generations that, that these things have been, have been going on. So, so that piece feels different. But at the same time, I don't think that we should drink our own Kool-Aid and get complacent into thinking that just because Juneteenth is, a holiday, is becoming a holiday, just because Aunt Jemima is being removed from, uh, you know, a, as, a, as a character, just because now when we're talking about Black Lives Matter, we're also saying Black trans lives matter too, right? Just because these things are happening does not mean that we have, that we've, that we've you know, crossed over the, 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 the hill, right? It doesn't mean that we've crossed over into the promised land, so to speak. And so I think it's important to really be clear-eyed about what's before us. So I'm not, I'm not jaded about working within institutions. I think I just have a better understanding of how institutions work and don't work and what they're set up to do. Got it. So you answered the, you actually answered the question, oh. <laughs> even though you said it wasn't the right question. <laughs> um, but in any case, there's another thing I want to bring up since you have worked and had a focus on reducing, reducing violent recidivism is, you know, one of the arguments that people trot out when they are detractors of the movement 
Um, and some of the things that we're going, we see going on in communities and people speaking out about police brutality is this black on black crime counter argument. You know, what about what's going on in your own communities? What about the things that you're doing to tear down the place, places that you live? It's, it's, it's almost becoming a trope how much you hear it, right? People saying that who are not in agreement uh, with however people choose to, to protest and engage in activism or as if that negates uh, or does away with police brutality. I really don't get it, but it, it comes out a lot. How do you respond to that when people say, well, what about Black on Black crime? I haven't yet developed a response that is professional and polite and probably digestible to whoever is asking that question. Mm-hmm. It just makes me angry. It just makes me angry. Um, first of all, crime, whether it's murder or otherwise, in large part is about proximity. So the majority of people who, you know, uh, who kill Black people are Black people. Majority who kill white people are white people. Exactly. Majority of people who kill any people are the people that live around them. So, like... What are we talking about? What are we talking about? What are we talking about? So anyway, so uh, let me let me let me not let me not go off on 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 the podcast. Um, so just first and foremost, just just on just just on just from basic common sense and just basic data, the whole argument doesn't really even really make sense. It, it's a whole, you know, I'm not even going to give I'm not even going to give energy to that to, to even that argument because it's it's something that is I, I I just can't I won't even give energy to it because it just makes me upset. What I will say though is that there are people who are working to end violence in Black communities. Street Corner Resources, for example, right? Part of what I did at Street Corner Resources would go out and try to get people to come to rallies and events and things uh, to, to talk about the violence that is going on in our own community. There are people who have dedicated their lives to this, who have no money, right? Who don't have huge budgets, and funding and revenue streams. And, you know, you know, so if someone really cares about that, go find your local community-based organization. I'm pretty sure I'm very 90% confident that just about every black community where this is an issue has someone there doing the work. Go find that person and say, how can I support you? But that's not really what the argument's about. It's it's really about justifying the destruction of black people. So, but we're not gonna get into that. So if someone says, well, what about Black on Black? Okay, well, fine. Go help Street Corner Resources. Go help Life Camp. Go help uh, uh, GMAC, right? You know, go, go help Living Redemption New Hub. Go help Release the Grip. You know, you know, you know go help uh, all these different people and organizations that have been doing the work since been doing the work since been doing the work before someone even thought that they should open their mouth and start talking about this in the first place. But one of the other things, um, that, you know, I would say to that when people say, oh, yeah, well, you know, what about black on black crime? Um, in addition to, you know, supporting community based organizations and people that are already doing the work. Um, is that when one individual kills another individual, that's two people who are killing someone. A police officer is someone who is a sworn officer of the law who has the legal authority to take life under very extreme circumstances and is paid by the people of the community to do that. Mm-hmm. It, is, it, it is a whole profession. So to even say, you know, if I, you know, it's like saying, it's like, you know, if I'm talking about uh, doctors, for example, that are committing malpractice, or we can talk about racial injustice in the public health system, 
well, what about the guy I showed you the drugs? You don't talk about that. What about the guy I showed you that bad batch of weed? Doesn't make sense. He didn't go to medical school, right? Like he doesn't have a license. Like, you know, it's a nonsensical argument. Make it make sense to me. Just make it make sense to me, right? Like to say that we can't walk and chew bubblegum at the same time to look at, yes, the issues that we have in our own community and then that also deal with the issue of police violence is nonsensical, especially when both of those are rooted in the fundamental problem of white supremacy. Because I do also believe that part of the reason why we do see higher rates of homicide in the Black community comes from white supremacy. It's a feeling of, this is just my own, this is my own theories, it's things I'm, some things I'm kind of working on in terms of some of my, my, my graduate work, since I'm, I'm in school for my PhD now, you know, is this idea of validation, right? A, a lot of, in the, in the literature, the academic literature now, we talk about urban violence and Black-on-Black violence and that kind of thing. What's often talked about is it's about disputes. It's about respect. It's about, Elijah Anderson uh, wrote Code of the Street that talks about, like, the street code. If, you know, someone, like, steps in their sneakers, you kind of have to do something back and that kind of stuff. Um, shout out to Eli Anderson. But what I think, and, and this comes from, you know, some, some, you know, some very preliminary student research that I've done and some of my own experiences, is that when we talk about why is disrespect an issue, why is it that if someone steps on my, first of all, I don't own a pair of Jordans because I grew up as a Knicks fan and so I don't watch anything from Michael Jordan. But if someone were to step on my, on my sneakers, my white sneakers, right, would I be upset? Yes. Am I going to shoot them? No. Right. Why does someone else make a different decision or feel that they have to? Well, you know what? I also have certain things in my life that it doesn't make sense to go to that extreme. Right. Like, I, I, you know, I, I talked about support networks and things that I have, whereas I recognize it's just a pair of sneakers. It's not about me personally. When we talk, in the literature, in the academic literature, they talk about this disrespect and respect and this sort of thing. But I think it goes even deeper now. And, and part of this I learned from from. A preliminary interview I had with I used to say cool is 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 thinking about what it means to be validated or invalidated as a person. And if I'm all so so what I'm thinking is if I'm already invalidated or feeling invalidated as a person in a larger macro society, right? Due to white supremacy and structural racism and all like that, right? And then in order to help myself feel validated, I say whatever coins I got and got me the, the, the retro Jordan 13s and whatever exclusive color that nobody else has, and you came and you just totally stepped on them and disregarded that whole situation of my sneakers, it speaks deeper to who I am as a person in invalidating my humanity, mm. right? So when in the literature and in a lot of the, you know, even in the ethnographic research, you hear people talking about, oh, this is the killings are over nonsense, it's over beefs. He disrespected me. He looked at me a certain way. I was feeling some kind of way. I was feeling some type of way. But we don't unpack that. What does that mean we're feeling some type of way? Right. What, why are you feeling that? Let's get down deeper. We stop at this level of analysis as if there's something else not deeper. But you let a white kid go up and shoot up a school in the suburbs and you got 50 different uh, academic articles and, and, and experts coming out the woodwork trying to analyze what happened, why it happened. Right. And, and so, and so the, again, that goes back to this you know, because part of white supremacy is anti-blackness. Because in order for white to be supreme, it has to be supreme in relation to something, the yin and the yang, right? And so anti-blackness is the other side of the white supremacy coin. And, 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 and you know, I think that this goes to a whole global context as well. 
there, there's black, there's blackness in terms of African descent and people of unknown African origin, as, as my wife says, like folks like, you know, like myself who are from, who are, who are descendants of slaves in the U.S. or, 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 or the Caribbean, right? And there also, there's also people who are direct African descent from the continent, right? But then there's also blackness as a social construct in the, throughout the world, right? And what does it mean to be black as opposed to what does it mean to be white in terms of power and privilege on a global perspective, right? What's often referred to as the global South, right? So, so these power dynamics play out on a very macro level. But when it comes down to the very micro level, you know, why is it that someone, I, I can understand now going to what you're saying, right? It's some of the, some of the intellectual training that I've had, the thinking that I've done, the self-work that I've done, and the experiences that I've had in, in working, not just in, in, in institutions of criminal justice, but doing some work on the street with actual community organizers and those who are working on the front lines, um, you know, it, it's, it's helped me to, to see that a, a large part of, I think, what, it, what is ailing us as a community and what leads to the violence that we see is, is really a fundamental issue of feeling validated as a human, of, of an existential crisis of feeling loved and accepted and wanted in this world. And those are very, 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 very deep, deep human needs that, that, that go into so many different things. Um, and so, you know, until we deal with that, that's one piece, like, we, oh, you mentioned the uh, uh, qualified immunity. Yeah, that's important. You know, but it's like when people talked about stand your ground, we need to change stand your ground laws. Yes, that's important. But then the, whatever the new law is will just be applied in a different way. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think, you know, from my perspective, um, you know, when I think about people talking about black on black crime, I, I think it just shows the lack of understanding, the, the lack of understanding that we have collectively about what is really um, what is what is the real issue is and, and what's really ailing us, ailing us in our community. Yeah. And I mean, I, I see people, you know, I was kind of chuckling to myself when you started and said that, like, I'm going to blow up if I answer this question. Because I, I see people posting these things on social media, you know, white people that I've grown up with, et cetera. And they say, you know, when I post this, I don't get a response. People are silent, you know, because they don't have an answer. It's like, no, we have an answer. It's just the, the answer is often way more than your intellectual capacity you can understand. <laughs> right. Or <laughs> that's number one. Or we just don't have the energy to explain it to you and do so without completely annihilating you and coming from an emotional perspective, because many of us have anger around this as, as well, um, because it really speaks to, it's to the point you made earlier, it speaks to you're not passionate about Black life. It's actually the opposite. You're saying if, you're, if you don't value Black life yourselves, then I don't have to. Why are we even having this conversation? Exactly. That, that, is, that is what causes that incendiary um, response, you know, for sure. And, and it's interesting talking about white supremacy, one thing that I, I say to people, and they always give me like a confused face unless they've really done the research, is that black people can have internalized white supremacy as well. There you go, that when part. I, when I say that, people always look like, wait, what? And I'm like, absolutely. And, and I, I don't even have all the language to explain that to you, but it's true. It's true. If you live within this system and that's all you know, and that's all your parents knew, and that's all your grandparents knew, if you if you think that there's not a part of that that's t- deeply embedded in how you see the world and how you see yourself, then I, I don't know what to tell you, you know? But shifting gears, because I'm going to let you get out of here. We didn't get to, like, half the things that I wanted to talk about, but we already established. Five-part series, you, man. You just, I, and the thing is, is that because there's so much that because of the work that I was doing previously that I could not say without fear of certain repercussions. Mm-hmm. And so now I, I, there's so much. 
that I that I have to say about so many things. So you you I mean you know I, I just had so anyway go ahead do your thing do your thing. Yeah, we're we're gonna come back for sure. Um, but we ask every guest the same question before we let them get out of here. Describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Mm. The time I had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. That that's a, that's a question right there. Time I had to be extraordinary on an ordinary. Shoot, I feel like just being black in America has been extraordinary on an ordinary day. I mean, Amen. just I mean, like the past two, three weeks, if you still coming to work, if you still showing up, there, there are people that I work with through, through my current job. Um, and, you know, our, our, we have partners in different cities across the country. And the way some of them are showing up every day, despite what's going on, is just amazing to me. You know, so so just the act of showing up and coming to work, I, to me, I feel like that's very extraordinary on what is otherwise in 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 this is an ordinary Tuesday. It's just it's just showing up in my black self and still giving you what we agreed for of wages in exchange for labor and not flipping. It's like it's like the the, the viral clip that's going around. I'm forgetting the sister's name. You know that said, y'all lucky that black people want equality and not revenge. Mm-hmm. It's like just the fact that we not burning everything down because we're really not. We're not burning everything down. Like that, and I'm not for destruction, but listen, like it, you know, it's extraordinary that we not tearing it down. That's extraordinary. If you look at history. That's extraordinary. And I, that's something we've been saying on the show because, of course, you know, we for two and a half years have been pushing manifest the vision for your life. You know, be productive. But one of the things that we try to be explicit about is what being extraordinary means can change from one season in your life to another. And for this season, being extraordinary may may mean doing what you need to do to maintain some semblance of peace and sanity and just getting through the day, just getting through the day to be able to get out of bed in the middle of all of this uh, is an extraordinary act at this time. And for those who say, I can't do it today, they deserve grace as well, because it's a lot and and it's it's a lot in the sense that the imagery is a lot to take in. But for a lot of us, we're having a trauma response. We're being triggered. It's calling up things for us. It's more than just this moment. It's a lot of it is calling up things that we've been thinking about or feeling for very long. Or those of us who've had experiences with the police or or encounters with the criminal justice system or have members of our family who who had or had been impacted in some way. Um, a lot of that, right, is being triggered right now. So I've been talking to a lot of Black folks who are just like, I can't get myself together. And because we've been taught that you got to push no matter what, just push, press your way, right? The language that we use is like, I just don't know why, you know, I can't be productive or I'm not my usual self. And for me, it's like, I know why. And the fact that you're even trying to the point you made earlier is a feat in and of itself, because sometimes it's hard to try. It is. Um, So I'm I'm with you there. That's a that's a perfectly fine answer, um, particularly for for where we are right now in the community. But like I said, we're going to have you back for sure. But in the interim, you, you did plug your LinkedIn uh, page earlier in a YouTube video you had, but but tell me where people can find you online. So I, I, I'm learning about how to really navigate this online space um, because, you know, it lives forever. And if you say, you know, I think we need to have space and, and room to grow as people. And I feel like we're in a time where, where that doesn't seem to, so as, as fiery and as passionate as I can be, I also think that growth is a process for everyone. And just because someone said something stupid and racist and off the wall, last year doesn't mean that they haven't grown in 365 days since then. And I think we need to, to make sure that we have, we have space and grace for people 
to still be better versions of themselves. So, so I'm still learning to navigate the online space, but on LinkedIn, yeah, you can just definitely find me, just, you know, Talib Hudson. I got the little gold emblem now. I pay for the account. So I'm, I'm official digital on LinkedIn. And then on, on Twitter, uh, uh, at Talib underscore Hudson. Uh, that's where you can find me on, on, uh, on Twitter as well. And the other, the other stuff, I don't, I'm not really on the other websites like, like that, but um, either LinkedIn or, or Twitter. And this is not a question that I pose often, but since you are so well-read um, and have, you know, the academic background, and I'm speaking to our people, we've been talking a lot about educating the other and how they need to educate ourselves, but I, I feel like there's a knowledge gap for some of our people too um, about the outgrowth of uh, white supremacy and structural inequality and how that has affected us. For, so for those who want to learn, right, they're like, I just want at least the baseline knowledge um, on some of this stuff, where would you tell them to start? One, two books that you feel like are uh, an initial primer into what what are really large systemic issues. Wow, wow, wow. That's deep. Um, I think a first book that I would draw people to, the book that's just screaming to me right now, is Black Feminist Thought by Patricia Hill Collins. I actually had the opportunity to meet her last year and I was totally geeking out at the Association of Black Sociologists Conference. But Black Feminist Thought by Patricia Hill Collins, because what she's talking about is, is, is developing uh, this, this uh, theory um, of Black Feminist Thought. And, and one of the things that really stuck out to me from her writing is talking about how you don't need to be an academic to be an intellectual. Mm. Like, you don't, like our, our mothers and whether they were domestic workers or factory workers, or or academics, or whatever, you don't, you don't. It doesn't matter. You also have social theories. You have ways of seeing the world. And the reason why I want to start there is because I think if we if we start with a book on white supremacy and inequality, that still centers whiteness mm-hmm. in our in our, our understanding. And so I want to center blackness and you know hashtag cite black women. Um, and, and so I also I I really feel like I'm gonna just give that one title. Because I feel like even trying to move on, you can't, I, I, it's, it's difficult to try to dismantle white supremacy without having an understanding of, of who we are as a people and what we can be and trying to strip away some of what we have. But we, have to ha- we have to have some unlearning before we can relearn and be equipped to even begin to address white supremacy, anti-Blackism and structural inequality. So I would say Black Feminist Thought by Patricia Hill Collins. I haven't even finished reading it. You know, it, it is somewhat of an academic book. It's, it's a bit thick, but it's 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 really, really, really good. It's really informed my thinking. It's it's a very seminal work. And I would say, I, I would say for, for all black folk, male, female, non-conforming, uh, con- whatever, whatever, however someone identifies, like that is a is a good place to to start. But especially for us Hotepian black men. So start 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 with the system. <laughs> You called yourself Hotepian. I didn't give you the label. You put it on yourself. I'm, I'm, I'm not Hotep. When me and my wife joke, you said I have I have Hotepian tendencies. Yeah, I, would I, w- I wouldn't call you Hotepian for sure. I, maybe you veer in here and there, but uh, but I get it. I understand. Um, yeah. Well, listen, we're coming back. We're going to do this again for sure because there's so much more. Um, you know, we and I, just for the benefit of our listeners, you and I had a conversation before we press record about the black male black female dynamic and your journey. Yeah. You want to bring your wife on. Like there's a whole other conversation that has to happen for sure. But in the interim, I'm so happy we were able uh, to chat today. And thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. And again, um, on, on a Juneteenth weekend, I was actually supposed to get married yesterday. Originally, there's a whole other story that we'll get into 
on our next installment. But uh, it's an honor to be here at this time. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And now you're, you've moved it a whole year, right? Is that correct? Yeah. So I'm yeah. technically married. The celebration is going to be mm-hmm. on Juneteenth for, you know, for the, you know, for everybody. And so we moved it a whole year uh, to, uh, uh, so, but we'll see, we'll see what happens next year with everything going on. Juneteenth might actually be a real holiday. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we'll, <laughs> we'll gotta see, we'll gotta see what happens. Yes. It's that, that's a whole other story we got to talk about, but to our listeners, as always, you know, we don't have a show uh, if you don't listen. So we thank you for tuning in. Check out Talib online. Clearly, he's a I'm just going to call him a thought leader. Um, and, and I think that we're going to hear a lot more from him. Take his advice. Pick up black feminist thought. Uh, I like the idea of unlearning first before you relearn. So take that forward. As always, like, share, subscribe to this podcast and remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26th. That's December 26ER.